Welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 156 and it's 4th of April 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Unusually eventful, given the dry period we currently find ourselves in. Um, <laughs> there's been lots of news, which has been exciting and which we'll get to forthwith. Um, there's also been a Bad Batch trailer, which I haven't like actually included as an item to discuss which is probably a mistake because obviously that's a big thing that happened um but yeah that would might be a good place to start what did you think about the trailer for the bad batch kirsty i liked it it got me interested i mean i was interested but you know what i mean like i'm I'm ready to watch it and nice we're kind of getting into that final month before it comes out so yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting kind of premise that they're setting up there, some intriguing tidbits that the fandom is already going nuts over and theorising, which is always part of the fun. Uh, I thought Tarkin was being his usual hilarious, ridiculous self. <laughs> yes, I enjoyed seeing him. <laughs> yeah, like I, I love Peter Cushing even when he's in animated form and obviously not voicing the character because he's long dead. Um, but yeah, like I really did like seeing Tarkin. So that was a very good way to start the trailer from my point of view. And I also found that Omega character very interesting because presumably that character is going to be a big focal point of the show and like maybe like a keystone mystery sort of thing because yeah, they're being a bit cagey surrounding the origins of that character, I think. Yeah, I guess we finally have Ray's dad's name. (laughs) Oh no. That'd be the most weird place to bring that in. Can you imagine? That's one of the popular theories. Really? Yes. <laughs> I love this fandom. People. I don't think wow. the timeline even works, but who cares? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to think about that. That's literally breaking my brain. Like, I was just stood here for a minute going like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that does not compute. Um, but yeah, The Bad Batch is coming soon. And there's a trailer for it, so we recommend that people go and check that out. Um, yeah, and I presume you're also pretty excited about all the other news that's come out recently, Kirsty. Oh yeah, like they added all the Ewok movies and the <laughs> cartoon yeah. and Tartakovsky's Clone Wars and the Boba Fett animated holiday special to Disney Plus. Yeah, like all it's of this. Feast. I'm just remembering how much has happened since we last recorded. I know. Like we were like crazy. There was nothing to talk about for so long, and then all of a sudden they dropped like three news items in a week. It was, like, what is happening? Yeah, because since we last recorded, I, I could swear the last time we recorded, we had no idea those things were even coming to Disney+. Plus. So the announcements happened since we last recorded, and now all these like blessed Ewok movies are actually on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Waiting we... for anyone to go and watch them. It's I know! We now live in a world where you can go and watch the Ewok movies easily. And I have. I can't believe it. Yeah, (laughs) actually give it to us. What is your snap review of Caravan of Courage? Like, that's very important. And hopefully we're going to do a separate episode on it. But we just need immediate thoughts. Yeah, I won't go into specifics, but I enjoyed myself greatly. Um, Yeah, good vibes. And yep. I look forward to watching the sequel, Battle for Endor. Have you seen Amazing. that? 
that's the thing. I don't think I have seen Battle for Endor. I've definitely seen Caravan of Courage because we had it on VHS when I was a kid. I'm dating mm. myself. Um, but yeah, I feel like the conclusion to the Ewok duology has permanently <laughs> been a mystery to me. So that mystery will now be lifted and that's extremely exciting. Like before all of this news came out, I was actually looking on eBay for the DVD. Oh, they expensive. Yeah, it was, because it was out of print, um, and yeah, quite sought after among Star Wars aficionados. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy that that is now a moot question, and just the next time that I subscribe to Disney+, Plus, they'll be there waiting for me, so yeah. Oh, and are you Team Sindel or Team Mace? Oh, Sindel. Oh, good, good. <laughs> That's the right answer. I didn't realise there was like a rivalry set up there, because, you know, they're brother and sister, and they're looking out for each other. Only but... in my mind, Kirsty, my strange mind. I didn't know that he was called Mace going into it, and I was like, whoa. Mace? Mace Windu? Yes, you're right! Wow! Is that oh like a goodness. common name in the Star Wars galaxy? Is that just like calling someone John? What's the significance <laughs> of this? I need to go down the Reddit rabbit hole. And trying to think about the timeline again. Maybe Mace Tawani was named after Mace Windu. Like in, o- well, in his honor, perhaps. Cause yeah, cause Mace, is it was it was he called Mace Windy in like the original Journal of the Wills drafts that Lucas did like way back when? Yes, I think he was, but I think it was almost like an unrecognizable character at that point. It was just a similar name, like yeah. it was very nothing like the character Samuel L. Jackson ended up playing. Recycling of names and stalls is a long and illustrious history. <laughs> Might be able to do an episode on that at some point. (laughs) The two maces, a deep dive. The parallels. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The mythological significance of the name Mace. That would actually be quite fun. Okay, but to actually move on, we do have lots of news to cover, so we should get into that. Um, And the biggest piece of news that has emerged in recent weeks is that the Obi-Wan series is set to begin production shortly and the cast has been revealed so yeah, could you read out the little write-up that we have from stars.com, Kirsty? Uh, yeah, where do you want me to start from? Um, yeah, just start from the beginning. Obi-Wan okay. Kenobi, the new blubber. Obi-Wan Kenobi, the new Disney Plus special event series starring Ewan McGregor as the iconic Jedi Master will begin shooting in April. <gasps> That's now! <gasps> the... <laughs> The story begins 10 years after the dramatic events of Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, where Kenobi faced his greatest defeat, the downfall and corruption of his best friend and Jedi apprentice Anakin Skywalker turned evil Sith Lord Darth Vader. Wow, major spoilers there. (laughs) Directed by Deborah Chow, director of two critically acclaimed episodes of The Mandalorian Season 1. Joining the cast are Moses Ingram, Joel, is it Edgerton or Egerton? Oh, that's a good question. Is that question. a silly question? Um, I just don't know. I'd say... You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I know who you mean. It's fine. Bonnie P.S. Mm-hmm. Sounds Kumail good. Nanjiani, Indira Varma, Rupert Friend, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Sun Kang, Simone Kessel, and Benny Safdie. Obi-Wan Kenobi is executive produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Michelle Rejwan, Deborah Chow, Ewan McGregor, and writer Joby Harold. Casting director is Carmen Cuba. Obi-Wan Kenobi will be available exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Nice. Yeah, like, this was all very exciting to me because it's just been endless. 
with an Obi-Wan series. Like, the development process has been complete hell. And obviously not for me personally. <laughs> it's not like, <laughs> it's just it's not It's been a really hard time for Rachel, scripts. okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've just got to give me some space, okay? I'm very emotional right now. Um, but yeah, we've just been talking about this for years, haven't we, Kirsty? And yeah, just to see it really become real like this and see the pictures of the actors and know that they are literally imminently going to start shooting this thing. Like, it just gives it this reality that it hasn't had for the longest time. So, yeah, I'm just super psyched that it's happening. It is really exciting. And just looking at that image that they released of the cast, it's like, wow, everyone is very handsome, very beautiful. And I just, yeah, it looks really great. What a cast. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, That will be a fun place to start. Should we go through the cast name by name and discuss what we know about them? Okay, some of them I don't know anything about, so... Yeah, no, and nor do I, so it will be completely like, do we know this actor's other work? But that's totally legitimate and fine. So yeah, first of all, Ewan McGregor. Um, I'm not sure who he could be playing, um, but he's obviously a well-known actor. He was in Moulin Rouge. Um, he was in... Um, oh, Train Spotting. That's right, it's in Train Spotting. Um, was he in anything else, Kirsty? That comes Down with Love. <laughs> yes, Down with Love. Oh my goodness. How am I forgetting, like huge swathes of his career but yeah i'm obviously just being stupid he's over what, kenobi what, what was so great about when the prequels were coming out was he was in all of those you know that was like the moulin rouge era yeah down with love era like he was kind of a rom-com king during the prequels so it was pretty cool yeah it was really smart actually because i think when you are part of a big franchise property like that it must be quite exhausting you know to be filming that because it takes up so much time and a lot of actors wouldn't necessarily bother to do other things while they'll while they're filming stuff like the Star Wars prequels. But yep, Ewan McGregor kept his schedule absolutely stacked, and he did all sorts of fun different things. So yeah, it was really cool. Um, and obviously also is a question of opportunity because he had those opportunities available to him and he took them. Um, but yeah, he's had a great career and it's really cool to see him come back to this role. And yeah, I'm interested to see how he like mediates it more with the Alec Guinness performance now. Mm. Because obviously he's so much closer to that in the timeline now than he was before. And yeah, I just feel like it's going to be quite a different characterization from the Obi-Wan we knew in the prequels. Definitely. Like post Revenge of the Sith, I was just listening to the From a Certain Point of View like the Empire um, version of that, the audiobook. Mm-hmm. And in the Obi-Wan story, like you can feel the weight of what happened in Revenge of the Sith on him. Like It colours everything, his perception of Luke. And obviously you, you do have that in the original trilogy, but to be able to explore that now with all of that extra context, I, I think it's going to be really great. I feel that there's so much interesting stuff that they could explore. Um, and Ewan is a talented enough actor to pull all that off. So, very excited. And I'm hoping it will also make the role much more dramatically interesting for him as well. Yeah. Because I do think that Ewan had fun playing Obi-Wan in the prequels, but because the writing in the prequels wasn't always the most character-focused, and I'm not ripping into the prequels, I do really enjoy them, but yeah, you could sometimes tell the actors were struggling a bit in terms of the material they were given. I feel like this show, it really does have the opportunity to let him dig deep into the psychology of Obi-Wan in a way that the prequels never quite were able to because of the nature of those movies. 
So yeah, I think it will be a really interesting challenge for him as an actor. Yeah, and the nature of the story there as well kind of inhibits what he was able to do because Obi-Wan is kept in the dark about so much going on with Anakin and Padme. Um, and and the way that they have to handle the love story obviously means that he has to go off in his own subplot. Yes. And that's more action-y based and like kind of following the mystery and the identities of things. And so, yeah, you're right that the like that heavier, meatier, emotional intensity is it's, it's there. You can see it in his performance, but it's not the focus. And so much of like your understanding of Obi-Wan in the prequels is through the filter of Anakin's perspective because he's the protagonist, obviously. So yeah. he's like positioned as the the mentor, older brother f- figure, but now we're going to get his feelings front and centre. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots to be excited for, basically, in what Ewan's going to be able to do here. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then, of course, there's Hayden Christensen. Um, and I'm going to not be stupid here. He's obviously playing Anakin slash Darth Vader. Um, and yeah, it's going to be really cool to see him given the opportunity to return to that character after so long, especially because of all the horrible reception <laughs> poor Hayden got from some rec- from some quarters. And I know that obviously that character is really beloved now, and like loads, so many people love Anakin, especially because of how his characterization was deepened with the Clone Wars and everything. Um, but yeah, like is a big question mark to me because I just have no idea how they're going to incorporate Darth Vader into the show, you know, especially as played by Hayden. Like, yeah. And I just don't know what we're going to get, but I'm very curious to see it. How do you feel about it, Kirsty? I'm a bit mixed because, you know, I, I really loved Anakin in the prequels. So I'm excited in that regard. I'm really excited to see Hayden back, but like you, I'm a bit apprehensive about how they're going to incorporate Vader into Obi-Wan's story whether it's going to be like them physically meeting again which you know as we've said before brings in questions about how that will fit into A New Hope and their reunion there Um, so remains to be seen we'll kind of have to wait and see what comes out Um, yeah so I'm I'm looking forward to it and and see what they're doing but um, just don't know what to think because I don't know whether he'll be like Anakin in flashbacks or Vader as he currently is and and then how would it work with him in the suit or would he be like a version of Vader that wasn't wearing the suit and the helmet like <laughs> I don't know yeah I don't know what to expect yeah so I, I doubt this will happen but for me it would be most interesting if Hayden mostly appeared as Anakin like in Visions and that sort of thing Mm. you know where it's like Obi-Wan is on Tatooine and he's being tormented by all these memories of Anakin and all these like visions of how things could have gone Um, because yeah I don't know I'm always much more interested in characters when they're humanised you know and I'm much more interested in Anakin outside of the suit to be honest Mm. than when he's in it Um. But yeah, I feel like he probably is mostly going to be in the suit. And yeah, that does also just raise a question to me of how much of that performance is going to come across as Hayden's because presumably the voice is going to be James L. Jones or one of the other Vader voice actors that they have. I'm asking questions we just don't have answers for right now, you know, and I Mm -hmm. know that we just need to wait for the show and see how it plays out. But yeah, I'm just very intrigued. 
Yeah, same. Um, okay, so then we have our first new cast member, which is very exciting because it's very much an unknown quantity. Um, and that is Moses Ingram. And I think both of us, Kirsty, know her from The Queen's Gambit, where she played Jolene, who was a friend of Beth's, the main characters. Mm-hmm. And she really stuck, stood out in that show um, as this really like strong, charismatic presence. So, yeah, I was really excited to see her in this cast list. How about you? Yeah, same. And did you see the Instagram post that she put up? Yes. Did she say <laughs> something about playing with lightsabers? Yeah. to that effect? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether to take that at its word or if she's just kind of like playing on the Star Wars theme. But a lot of people jumped to her playing Ahsoka, which I just don't see happening because they only just cast Rosario Dawson in that role. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of currently theorizing that she plays some sort of inquisitor role, but really she could be, you know, she could also be in flashbacks to Obi-Wan's life, um, you know, when they were Jedi. I, it's it's hard to know, but that's part of the fun right now. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that I can't remember which one it was, but one of the trade magazines that reported on this story mentioned that she has one of the most significant roles in the show. Which is exciting because that's a clear indication that it, this is an important character who's going to feature quite heavily in the narrative. So yeah, that's really cool because as much as I love Ewan and Hayden, it can't just be like about them exclusively. You know, the half there has to be this other stuff going on with different characters who can be foils and who can interact with them and like just add more substance to the story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm curious to see what those interactions will be and i'm just gonna say it now just so it's out there and then i can even look like a fool be vindicated later on my very early theory is that she plays someone who is like a padawan at the jedi temple as like a eight nine year old or something and she was like smuggled away or managed to escape somehow and she's like grown up as like a rogue jedi and she's like out for revenge against the empire and vader and that sort of thing I would like to see that. And I know I'm just writing fan fiction in my head. Wow. That does sound cool. Exactly. So it's possible. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in Revenge of the Sith, didn't Obi-Wan like set up some sort of like beacon or something to like send a message to the Jedi saying, oh, you've got to get away. Oh, yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. And was did he like establish some sort of like rendezvous point kind of or a way of them? Oh, I don't know, touch? actually. Yeah. But there were definitely Jedi that were warned away. It wasn't a case of they were all killed. Okay. Yeah, so it's possible that she's an escapee, basically. Hmm. Um, but yeah, possible, but there's zero evidence for that, apart from the whole Jedi comment on it in her Instagram <laughs> post, which may mean nothing. So yeah, let's take it with a pinch of salt. Um, yep, and um, would you like to announce the next two cast members as one, Kirsty? Yeah, so we have Joel and Bonnie back as Peru and Owen. I'm so excited. And I was, I, stupidly, I was surprised by this. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, I just hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, like, I feel like I was really cynical and I kind of knew Joel was going to come back. So I'd seen, like, interviews where people had asked him about it and he'd been like, oh, yes, we'll all come back if the story demands it. I have no idea if that's what he sounds like. I'm just (laughs) doing a stupid accent now. Um, But, yeah, seeing Bonnie come back as well, that made me so happy because... 
you know, Joel Edgerton, he's quite a big name at this point. You know, he's mm. got quite a successful career in his own right. So he's quite a big starry name to attach to this project now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bonnie, I think she's kept working. You know, I think she's Australian. So I believe she's mostly done like TV work in Australia, um, which is totally good and awesome. But essentially, I don't know what her work has been after Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, essentially. Um so yeah, I was really excited to see them go back to her and get her for the show as well because I think I just love that attention to detail, basically. And I'm also like a continuity nerd, so it would have annoyed me if they just recast the role as someone mm. else or just uh, even worse, like a raised Baru from the story. Oh my so, god! Yeah, yeah, or oh, that would have pissed me off. How would you like to see like? Owen and Baru featured in this story and I'm sure you're just like open-minded according to what the story needs but yeah, um, do you have any particular feelings about that? I do actually I would like to see them happy together because yeah. you know don't get me wrong I love the scenes that we have with them and Luke in um, A New Hope but Owen at that point is like really quite grouchy isn't he and mm. you understand why you know it's it's a tough life out there on Tatooine as a moisture farmer, but I would like to see these two happy together, and I would love a more prominent role, especially for Baru. Yeah. Um, I just feel like she's one of the really overlooked characters in Star Wars, and Star Wars does this a lot with like mother figure characters, so it's it's not specific to her, unfortunately. But I would like to see more love for Baru, and if we can get a bit of a a Baru renaissance and have a fandom developing around that character, that would be really wonderful. Barunaissance. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be she great. Can you it. imagine how excited Alan Dean Foster is right now? Ah, <laughs> uh, Baru. Because <laughs> this whole thing, it could really set up for that, you know? It could really flesh out that Luke and Baru relationship. Well, this is the other question that's generated here. It's like, does this mean we're going to see, like, 10 year old Luke Skywalker? I thought we have to if they're bringing back Owen and Baru. It's like, what are they going to do? Like, oh, he's off at boarding school on Mos Espa. <laughs> well, if he doesn't know at this point about Obi-Wan's true identity, it could be a case of like Owen and Baru going to see Obi-Wan like in secret while yeah. Luke's not around. I, we, we don't know. I just, I, I'm, I'm preparing myself to see young Luke I don't really want to. So... Is that because of how he like takes over everything he appears in? Well, it's not Luke's fault. <laughs> You're going to look at that little child actor and be like, you, how dare you? No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. But he's a bit of a black hole for the fandom. Yes. He becomes the focus, um, good or bad. And yeah, I'm sure, you know whatever actor they pick for that role I'm sure he'd be fine it's not an issue it's just like once again would it be Luke kind of stealing focus from the protagonist which unfortunately does happen so yeah we'll see no I do think there's going to be lots of conversations about Luke I agree with you though and that I'd prefer for him to not really be a featured character in his own right I'm fine for him to be like seen from a distance and like on the periphery of things but yeah, I could do without like a whole episode about the adventures of like young Luke just doing shit. It's like I'm good, thanks. I mean, it's possible that they're saving the announcement for a big reveal, but it's also possible that because they're announcing the main cast here, it means that whoever is playing Luke, it's a smaller role that doesn't need to be announced right now. Yeah, that's very you know? true. So, yeah, hopes for eternal. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so then the next actor we have is Kamal Nanjiani. Um, and yeah, he's a really famous dude, actually. I'm surprised <laughs> to see his name here. Cause it's Me like, too. Wow, you've done like really big films. Yeah, I follow him and Emily on Instagram and I was really... I, I was surprised to see like that's actually where I first saw it and then people would because I hadn't been on Twitter at that point during the day and I was like what because I know he's in the Marvel stuff now as well right yes he is he's going to be in Eternals okay so he's out in the fall okay yeah. it hasn't come out yet okay yeah um but yeah I know there was that huge deal when he was like training to be in that and like becoming a big movie star but yeah um this was a really nice surprise yeah, that was awesome. Like, my first impulse when I see him is to think of The Big Sick, which is a great movie. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, I really love it. It's one of the best, like, I don't even sure it's a rom com because it's, like, really, like, ah, uh, like, painful moments in yeah. it that make you tear up. But it's just a really delightful, lovely movie. And mm. he's so good in it. And I think he wrote it, didn't he? So it was about his relationship with his real life partner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, he's just so talented. So I have no idea who he's playing, but I'm really glad he's part of this. And I think he'll be an asset to it. So me yeah, too. Exciting. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested to see what kind of role that would be. Whether it would be more comedic or more serious, because I feel at this point he can do both. Yeah, I think the only theory I do have, and I kind of hope it's wrong, so I'd like him to actually be on screen. So I feel like because he is so high profile and so busy with lots of different projects, I do wonder if he's maybe like voicing like a droid or something. Like, which is possible because obviously there's usually at least one prominent droid in a Star Wars thing. But I would prefer for him to be playing like an actual character where we see him, you know, see his face. Me too. Somehow that had not occurred to me as a possibility. And I'm like, this is a Star Wars project. I have to remember that some people might turn out to be aliens or droids. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see all these beautiful faces as they are. So, uh, typical styles. Um, yep. So then, on next up, we have Indira Varma, um, who is also another very exciting casting announcement. I think she'd been rumored before this came out, so it wasn't completely unexpected when she showed up here. But yeah, it's still really cool. I mainly know her from Game of Thrones. But she was really fabulous in Game of Thrones. Like she played such a great character, and she just had the most like amazing, striking presence about her. So, yeah, I I have no idea who she's playing. Again, that's going to be the refrain for the rest of this. Um, <laughs> but I'm really glad she's in it. So yeah, how about you, Kirsty? Me too. It's only Game of Thrones that I've seen her in, as far as I can recall. But she's obviously fantastic in that part. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're continuing to get the Game of Thrones alumni. In Star Wars, yeah. Hopefully they well. can like figure things out so that her and Pedro can walk the red carpet together at some point. Like, <laughs> do, just do a Star Wars event where they bring everyone, like have everyone get together, have it be a big family. That would just be lovely. <laughs> I've seen people preemptively cast her as various different existing characters, like Ventress, for example, which I cannot understand because she has amazing bone structure. But I think someone pointed out that Ventress is dead by the time this series happens. Uh, sorry, guys. Spoilers. Um, that doesn't matter in Star Wars. It's true. They can do anything they want, really. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty confident she'll probably just be playing a new character. But 
we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, same. I'm with you. I'm kind of assuming that everyone's someone new unless we already recognise them from previous Star Wars stuff. Exactly. I think four returning characters is more than enough, to be honest. I don't think we need more like, oh, I know them from this other thing. But yeah, it will all depend on how they're used. So like, I'm going to be open-minded to whatever they do, really. Um, then it's Rupert Friend, who has a hilarious surname. Sorry, Rupert. Um, <laughs> Um, and yeah I've seen him in various stuff but it was mostly really old stuff like I think he was in the like Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice yeah he's Mr Wickham yeah he's Mr Wickham in that um, and I know I've seen him in other stuff as well like he I thought he was really like dreamy at a certain point he was like a bit of a crush of mine like not so much now in Pride <laughs> and Prejudice he kind of looks like Orlando Bloom like, I always yes. do a bit of a double take. <laughs> exactly. I think that was it. It was like the Orlando Bloom effect. So I think it was like a teenage crush, you know? Aww. Has he? Do you know what he's been in lately? No. Let's, okay. look, let's look him up. Let's see what he's been doing. Okay, so he was in The Death of Stalin. Oh, I haven't seen that. I need to. Yeah, no, I think you'd like it. It's funny. And then, like, a bunch of stuff I haven't heard of. Oh, he was in Hitman, Agent 47. <laughs> I think that was a huge bomb. Um, oh, and he was in A Simple Favour. Oh, I loved A Simple oh! Favour. Who was he in that? That was such a good movie. Yeah, that was a delightful film. Um, He was clearly in the supporting cast. He played someone called Dennis. Okay. Yeah, I don't recognise that character off the top of my head, but I'm glad he's still been working, basically. But yeah, in all seriousness, with Rupert Friend being in Obi-Wan... You think he's going to be a bad guy? I think he looks like a bad guy to me, based purely off that photo, to be honest. I was going to say it's the it's the moustache. <laughs> exactly. It's like the evil moustache. I think it's also the British thing. You know, it's very easy to imagine him as an imperial. Um, and yeah, they're just going to need someone to do that sort of role. You know, they're going to need some sort of underling below Vader, who is like the middleman, kind of, in terms of getting the evil stuff done. Mm. And yeah, I could see Rupert Friend doing that sort of job. Okay. Yeah, no, I I can definitely see the possibility. Yeah. I want someone to put together a scorecard of all of, all my guesses so then they can mark <laughs> me at the end of all this. So then next up we've got... O'Shea Jackson Jr. Awesome. Cool. So have you seen him in anything else, Kirsty? Yeah, I've seen him play his dad in Straight Outta Compton. Oh, wow. Like his literal dad. Yeah, he's, he's Ice Cube's son. So oh, wow. I remember coming out of that movie <laughs> My husband was like, wow, that guy really looks like Ice Cube. I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's because Ice Cube's his dad. <laughs> wow, that must be the weirdest thing to play your own father in a film. How was the performance? Oh, he was brilliant. Yeah, oh, really, great. really awesome. good. And I, unfortunately, I haven't seen him in anything else. So I'm going to have to do some homework myself. I am just looking up his filmography and I can see he was also in Ingrid Goes West, which I have oh, seen. Oh, I have seen that then. Yeah, yeah. And I would recommend that film like i really enjoyed it um he plays a supporting character in that okay he's the an inspiring screenwriter and ingrid's landlord who falls in love with her and yeah i vaguely remember that part but not well enough to like give a detailed review of the performance but i'm sure he was good in it and yeah it sounds like he definitely made a big impression and straight out of compton yeah i really enjoyed ingrid goes west but i don't think it was super well reviewed and Reactions seem quite mixed, but but I, I liked it. 
yeah awesome I, like I feel like we're using this to promote lots of like, <laughs> I know we need to movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like it just for my own benefit um okay yeah then there's Sung Kang um and I know he's in the Fast and Furious movies but I have okay. not seen them I've seen some of them but like the old ones like the first couple right okay is he yeah. in the more recent ones I think so. I believe he okay. plays a character called Han, um, because lots of people make comparisons to Han Solo. Right. Um, because both <laughs> characters have the same name. But yeah, like he's clearly like a bit of a fan favourite. I've seen lots of people be excited to have him in the cast. Cool. So yeah, like it's another good get for the show, which is awesome. Then there's Simone Castle, who I think out of all of the people in the cast, I probably know the least about her. I'm not even sure what else she's been in. I wasn't familiar with her work. She's very beautiful. She's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, that's my review. <laughs> um, but I will quickly look her up just in case I do recognise her in anything. Usually you've seen people in something without realising you've seen them. Yeah, that seems to be the theme today. Yes, very much. Okay, haven't seen any of her movies. Yeah, I don't think I've seen her in anything, but she's been in a lot of stuff. Like she's okay. been in lots of TV shows since the early 90s, for example. Right. So, yeah, a long storied career, and I'm excited to see who she's playing. Um, and then finally, Benny Safdie, which is wild because he's like a famous film director <laughs> with his brother. Um, but he he does also act. He's acted in other things. Like, his performances have always been good when I've seen him and stuff. So, yeah, I've no idea who he might be playing, but it's cool that they got him for Stars. I don't think I've seen him act, but the impression I'm getting here is this is like sort of in the vein of when when a Herzog was announced yeah you know? it's it's an odd pick but it's like oh maybe they're financing their own independent work with a Star Wars project <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I think that's very likely and a part of me does love the crazy crazy prospect of the Safdie brothers actually directing a Star Wars property one day but I think that would require a tremendous leap of faith from Lucasfilm because the Safdie brothers are anything but safe in their directorial approach and obviously I'm sure no one wants it to become a similar situation to Solo again because obviously they hired like the hot new directors and Lord and Miller but then they decided that they were going a bit too wild and off script for them so mm. they got someone who they could just trust to do like a decent workmanlike job with it and yeah I would really want them to make completely sure they were on the same page in terms of their vision if they were to go for like a really exciting directorial team again but that's probably not going to happen he probably really is just in this for like a nice paycheck and hopefully a fun role so yeah yeah cool and him. it's also possible that he just is personally a big star wars fan and it's been like a a childhood dream to be in it so why not <laughs> no exactly make all those dreams fly benny make them fly <laughs> <laughs> yeah no so talking through that cast i'm definitely really psyched for it like they've got some great names and there's clearly a whole bunch of talented people in the show and yeah that makes me excited me too um uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see what kind of comes out now um not expecting a whole a ton of leaks because stuff on andor has been pretty tight right yeah they're being very secretive Although having said that, just before we recorded, I saw that someone had put up a TikTok um, of them driving through the Obi-Wan set. Which oh! in England. <laughs> so that okay. was a bit of a fail from a security perspective. <laughs> but to be honest, it didn't reveal all that much because it is just Tatooine, which is what you'd expect, you know? Right. 
but yeah, like it's like, guys, you've really got to do better with this if you want to keep things under wraps. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure someone's going to get fired, which is a shame. But at the same time, yeah, just don't let randos onto the set of the camera and take TikToks. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a good look. Um, yeah, any final thoughts on Obi-Wan before we move on, Kirsty? Not really. Just, you know, an- anticipating. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and that's the perfect note to proceed on. So the next thing to discuss quickly is that we have a Star Wars Visions tie-in novel announced and that's going to be called Ronin. And there's not a great deal to go on with this. It was just announced on Twitter. There wasn't even the usual press release or synopsis that you usually get. Um, So yeah, I'll just quickly go through the tweet. So it was from the official Star Wars Books account. This year, Star Wars Visions will bring all new creative takes on Star Wars from the world's best anime creators. Come in October 12th, an original novel inspired by one of those animated tales. A Star Wars book quite unlike any before it. Ronin by Emma Miko Kandon. Just to be clear, this is not a novelization. This is an original novel. And to tell it, we're so thrilled to have a vibrant new voice in Emma Miko Kandon joining the Star Wars author family. We can't wait to share more of Emma's story with you soon. Um, see, I just wanted to acknowledge this because it really does seem like Emma is exactly what they've said, like this fresh new voice. As far as I can tell, this is going to be the first novel she's published. And yeah, I'm just thrilled to see them bringing in someone completely new like this because mm-hmm. I think it's an amazing opportunity. And obviously there's not much to discuss because we really have like no plot information or anything but it's just cool and it's nice to see that visions itself is being expanded because i kind of thought it would just be a like one and done type thing you know just the show itself and there wouldn't be anything accompanying accompanying it so yeah i'm excited by this announcement yeah i it was a surprise um didn't really have any expectations like you say for what would be surrounding visions and we know so little about the project itself at this point yeah um so yeah i'll be interested to see how that goes and obviously the the title itself is it it conjures an image of of what the story could be about but um we don't know the specifics yet so how it will tie into like one of the the stories that is in visions if you have kind of what you were talking about earlier like a, a rogue wandering jedi that sort of thing that'd be pretty cool yeah exactly it's like a ronin the literal definition of that is a wandering samurai who had no lord or master and i do really like that idea because to me that conjures the idea of a jedi who is independent of the jedi order you know so maybe like a former jedi who's like renounced their vows but they have all the training and the skills and they're just traveling around doing what's good for them and you mean like ahsoka yeah, I guess like Ahsoka. <laughs> um, but I really hope it's just a completely new original Oh, character. I think it will be, yeah. Yeah, um, because, yeah, like it's a cool story and I'm glad Ahsoka has that story. But she can't be the only one with that story, basically. And I think this will come up in, in the light of the Jedi discussion we're going to have as well. But I'm all about Jedi who basically put their middle finger up at the Jedi Order and are like, screw you, I'm going off to do my own thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I like Rebels. Me too. Um, And yeah, I think, didn't you look up Emma's tweet history and she had like some cool, interesting tweets that were like positive and encouraging? 
I found it via her website because she they weren't like tagging her on social media at first at least in the initial announcements so I just googled her and kind of yeah went through her website and then found her personal twitter there and she I think she only had like a couple hundred followers at most at that point but she seems to be like very fandom oriented and familiar as as a person so I I don't know what her history is but I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out that she has a history of writing fanfic and that's kind of how she's got into it Um, because as you say if this is her first novel to be published um, she presumably has lots of other writing experience so um, yeah she she has some interesting opinions on various aspects of fandom culture yeah and I'd love to find out just how she got the opportunity like if she pitched something to Lucasfilm or yeah I'm really curious to learn more about her story so I can emulate it and get published <laughs> by Lucasfilm no, no I didn't say anything um, but yeah no it will be a really cool project to follow and see develop over the coming months um, okay cool so then the next thing to discuss is that there's a new audio drama so in the vein of Jedi Lost and Dr. Aphra that's been announced um, and it's going to be written by Kevin Scott um, and it is called Tempest Runner. Um, would you be able to read out what Kevin has put on his website about it, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. I'm stoked to be back writing Star Wars audio drama two years after the already nominated Dooku Jedi Lost. The exclusive news of my brand new audio original Tempest Runner was announced by Christina on yesterday's episode of the High Republic show. Set in the High Republic era, Tempest Runner focuses on Lorna D as she leads her warband of Nile following the events of my upcoming novel, The Rising Storm, out in June from Del Rey. Lorna was originally created for Charles Saul's Light of the Jedi and quickly became a fan favourite. In the audio, we delve a little more into her past and see her having to cope with threats from both the Jedi and her own number. Tempest Runner is out in the fall from Del Rey in Penguin Random House Audio and will be available to pre-order soon. So I was pleased to see this. I really loved Jedi Lost. I thought it was a really well done drama. And yeah, I feel like these dramas, they're a great way of giving more depth to individual characters. And as we'll go into in the discussion about Light of the Jedi that we're about to have, there's loads of really cool, intriguing characters in the High Republic. But so far, the story has obviously been so broad and expansive that it can be a little bit difficult to get a handle on individuals and their stories. So, yeah, I feel like we'll really get an opportunity to get to know Lorna on another level through this, so that'll be really cool. Yeah, and Lorna's one of those characters in Light of the Jedi that you do get the impression that there's a a lot more interesting stuff going on under the surface, and like what in her past has led her to this point where she behaves this way and has this kind of worldview. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in the story. Yeah, no, so that's something cool to look forward to. Um, yep, so I think that's most of the news done, which is exciting. Um, but before we get into the spotlight on Light of the Jedi, we do have a quick listener email that I'd like to read out. So I will go ahead. Dear Rachel and Kirsty, thank you for such a wonderful podcast. I'm so glad I stumbled upon it. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness, analysis, and empathy. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. I joined the sequel trilogy hype train rather late, didn't watch Force Awakens or Last Jedi until a few months before Tross, but I was all in. Tross was actually the first Star Wars film I saw in theatres, which, well, bummer for me. Oh no, I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, during quarantine, I simply went back and listened to your podcast from beginning to end. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. 
Um, so this leads me to my question that I hope maybe you could address. The idea of the balance of the force, especially with regard to the sequel trilogy, I, maybe being naive, understand balance as equal distribution, powerful light, powerful dark, darkness rises and light to meet it. I thought the force tries to counterbalance itself to ensure neither side overpowers the other to achieve equanimity. But then at the end of Tross, Anakin says to Rey, bring balance to the force as I did, and she kills Palpatine, and Ben isn't a dark sider anymore. So is the force only balanced when it's in the light? Maybe that's just how the force works, and that's fine if so, but I hope you could share your thoughts on the matter and maybe help stop this thought from noodling around my head. Hope you all both having a lovely week and thanks again for a lovely show. All the best, Cecilia, listener from Denmark. Oh, that's so cool. I love how we have listeners all over the world. It's really awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thank you for the lovely email, Cecilia. Um, yeah, could you share your take on that, Kirsty, in terms of what we know about what balance in the force actually means? Yeah, although it's not, I'm not, it's not particularly well thought out, honestly, because I'm maybe being pretty cynical about this but I kind of think the definition sort of changes based on whoever's writing in the current moment Mm. Um, I think it's just kind of whatever's convenient for the story because it does seem like it's balanced between light and dark when they want it to be and then it's also as she says in the light is what is balance like the, the light is the balance yeah. So um, I, I kind of think it's just whatever they need it to be for the story. Yeah, I feel like there are quotes from George Lucas where his understanding of it was that balance was when the light side was in control, basically. Mm. And the dark side was this like chaotic force that was disrupting the balance. And right. it needed to be eliminated for balance to be restored. And that fits with how the original trilogy ends, right? Palpatine's gone, so balance is restored. Exactly, yeah. But then I do feel it's complicated and muddied in the sequel trilogy Mm. because Ryan in The Last Jedi does a lot of that in terms of complicating that concept of balance and like what does balance entail, basically. So if you think about that symbol of the prime Jedi, I think it is, that's in the Jedi Temple on Act 2... Like you can see like it's literally split in half, you know, half light side, half dark side. And they're both there in equilibrium with each other. And I don't think that necessarily has to like completely undermine or contradict George's understanding of it. I think it could just be that the Jedi Order at different points in its history has had different ways of dealing with and interpreting the dark side and how best to reconcile that with the light side of the force. But yeah, I do think to some extent, and from a cynical perspective, it is what Kirsty's saying, where different creators take different interpretations of it. But I think one of the challenges for the canon and the stories as they keep on evolving is to like give it some coherence from an in-world perspective. Does does that any of that make sense, Kirsty? It does. I think the problem might arise partly because the force is often used as like a, a metaphor for the characters and their journey so you have the symbolism of Rey and Kylo Ren in the sequel trilogy obviously there's the whole red and blue yin yang black white costumes the dark and the light and they're mm. the dyad so it's this notion of they need each other 
and they're on opposing sides but they're drawn together um, and then they're pushed apart with these various ways and then Ben ends up on the light side again but they're still they're still considered the dyad at that point but then Ben disappears so it's like once he's in the light he's no longer needed like the balance is off whack again it's mm. you know do you know what I mean they, they, they like throughout that sequel trilogy development of their relationship it's this notion of you need that balance you need the dark and the light but there's also the tension of Ben needs to redeem himself so it, I think it's a case of things sort of being mixed up with the intent of the the exploration of the themes that they have and then not quite bringing it to a satisfying resolution because their relationship is kind of um what the way that the story is exploring how the force works within the trilogy right and because you know people are kind of mixed as to how that ends and what it means for the future of the force um i think there's some confusion for that reason now it's like ray going into uh being the future leader of the jedi what does that mean for her like what's her understanding of how the force works now yeah it's it's not clear (laughs) exactly and it could potentially be a really really interesting stuff if future stories actually engage with that and take it seriously but yeah that obviously remains to be seen so i feel like we could honestly do a separate discussion on this so i won't say too much more but i think my final thought would be that George Lucas, when he was envisaging the original trilogy, to a lesser extent the prequel trilogy, I think there was very much a black and white morality at play. You know, there's good and there's bad. Good needs to win out at the end. You know, it's that very like simple, like easy to follow, like morality. You know, that I think appealed to a lot of people, um, and made those films so resonant. Whereas I think now like audiences generally are a little bit more sophisticated and they want a little bit more gray in their characters and their backgrounds basically you know they like that ambiguity and that tension between the good and bad in all people so i feel like that's why the sequel trilogy played into their ambiguity more than george did in his films but yeah like it's something where it's all a little bit fuzzy um but it's a really interesting question and yeah i hope our thoughts were at the very least interesting so yeah thank you for asking it okay cool so then we're going to move into our discussion of lights of the jedi um we obviously want to talk a little bit about the high republic initiative more generally and explaining the background to that a little bit um but yeah i believe you have someone to thank kirsty before we get into the discussion proper Yes, I want to thank my friend Josh for buying Light of the Jedi for me. Oh, they're so nice. <laughs> it, was, it was very sweet. I was being a bit of a brat and I was complaining on Twitter about how I was uh, six weeks away, I think, something not ridiculous like that, from getting it from the library. And I was just being really impatient because I was getting a lot of FOMO from people who were tweeting out their thoughts on it and really enjoying it. And he messaged me and he was like, can I buy this book for you? So, yeah, it was a really nice surprise. Thank you, Josh. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, that's so awesome. Thank you. And yeah, it's really great when you're just like ranting and like complaining on Twitter and then someone actually takes it seriously and does something about it. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, for the record, I was not putting it out there intentionally in the hope that someone would <laughs> buy it for me. Yeah, you did follow it up with, very oh, here's surprise. my PayPal email address. <laughs> and I won't make a habit of it. 
<laughs> Very grateful. Thank you, Josh. Oh, that was lovely. So yeah, this has been going on for a long time. I can't even remember when the first word of Project Luminous came out, but I know it's been several years, basically, that this has been floating around in the ether. Um, and yeah, like I just wanted to start out with a recap of the history and like one of the first tangible announcements we have is from February 2020 and that was an announcement from Lucasfilm about the launch of the High Republic series and an explanation about what it would actually be. Could you read out what I've highlighted from that announcement, Kirsty? Later this year, which turned out not to be the case because it was delayed, um, Lucasfilm will launch an epic new era of Star Wars storytelling that will be explored through multiple voices in adult and young adult novels, children's books, and comics from a variety of publishers, including Disney Lucasfilm Press, Del Rey, IDW Publishing, and Marvel. Star Wars The High Republic, which has previously been referred to as Project Luminous, will be set in an era when the Galactic Republic and the Jedi Order are at their zenith, about 200 years before the events of Star Wars The Phantom Menace. This period on the Star Wars timeline will not overlap any of the filmed features or series currently planned for production, giving creators and partners a vast amount of room to tell Star Wars stories with new adventures and original characters. Which honestly seems like something that is now open for debate. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I was interested in revisiting this, because I feel like it's I don't know why they commit to these statements in their statements if they're then going to walk it back. (laughs) Typical Lucasfilm. (laughs) We're so excited to be opening up such a rich, fertile era for our authors to explore, says Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy. We'll get to see the Jedi in their prime. Star Wars The High Republic features the Jedi as we've always wanted to see them, as true guardians of peace and justice. This is a hopeful, optimistic time when the Jedi and the Galactic Republic are at their height. But of course, into this glorious new era, something wicked this way comes, says Lucasfilm Publishing Creative Director Michael Siglin. This initiative will give readers young and old a new corner of the galaxy to explore through rich, meaningful stories. Plus, readers will learn what scares the Jedi. So yeah, this is basically the backdrop against which Light of the Jedi exists. And Light of the Jedi is basically a touchstone of the whole High Republic era because it's the first book to be published. And yeah, it just really kicks the whole thing off, essentially, in terms of establishing the world, establishing the cast of characters, and establishing the like interrelationships between everything, in terms of the different factions and everything. But honestly, even Light of the Jedi is just touch scratching the surface, because there's loads of other books and stuff as well. Um, there's been a junior reader's book called The Test of Courage that's come out um, by Justina Ireland which we've both read and there's also a young adult book by Claudia Gray called Into the Dark Um, and as far as I recall they kind of intersect with Light of the Jedi so they take place at essentially the same time that Light of the Jedi is happening in or if not slightly after and yeah there's just this whole interconnected universe of stories and it's a lot but it's also kind of fun and yeah like how do you feel about this whole initiative Kirsty? now that we've actually started to read some of the content from it i'm enjoying it and i'm just not pressuring myself to read it all because i know there are quite a few comics already out at this point and i just don't see a way to keep up with it all if i want to keep enjoying the other stories and things that i enjoy so um 
I'm just kind of dipping into whatever piques my interest and mm-hmm. I think we're kind of probably going to be aligned on a lot of that because we both like reading the books but we're, we're not really comics people but yes yeah. I'm also not opposed to um checking one out if someone comes out with a review that says wow this seems like something that would be really up my alley you know um so yeah enjoying it so far exactly and yeah I feel like it's a similar situation for me because I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of what's coming out because there is so much and yeah I'm trying to do the same thing where it's like okay deep breaths I can enjoy this best by just focusing on the aspects of the High Republic that I find the most interesting to engage with and yeah luckily as Kirsty said that is usually the books so it's pretty easy to keep that as my inroad into this galaxy of stories so yeah it's very exciting um and yeah so Light of the Jedi um is by Charles Soule um and hopefully anyone listening to this discussion will have already read Light of the Jedi (laughs) um but we're gonna do our best to keep it somewhat coherent just in case people are listening without having read the book Although I will say at this point that is going to be a full-on spoiler discussion. So I really would strongly recommend that people pause here, go away and read the book and come back after they've read it if they haven't got around to it yet. Um, But yeah, just so that is coherent in case people really do want to proceed without reading the book first. Just going to quickly read out a synopsis for the book. So, long before the First Order, before the Empire, before even the Phantom Menace... Jedi lit the way for the galaxy in the High Republic. It is a golden age. Intrepid hyperspace scouts expand the reach of the Republic to the furthest stars. Worlds flourish under the benevolent leadership of the Senate. In peace reigns, enforced by the wisdom and strength of the renowned order of force users known as the Jedi. With the Jedi at the height of their power, the free citizens of the galaxy are confident in their ability to weather any storm. But even the brightest light can cast a shadow and some storms defy any preparation. When a shocking catastrophe in hyperspace tears a ship to pieces, the flurry of shrapnel emerging from the disaster threatens an entire system. No sooner does the call for help go out than the Jedi race to the scene. The scope of the emergence, however, is enough to push even the Jedi to their limit. As the sky breaks open and destruction rains down upon the peaceful alliance they helped build, The Jedi must trust in the Force to see them through a day in which a single mistake could cost billions of lives. Even as the Jedi battle valiantly against calamity, something truly deadly grows beyond the boundary of the Republic. The hyperspace disaster is far more sinister than the Jedi could ever suspect. A threat hides in the darkness, far from the light of the age, and harbours a secret that could strike fear into even a Jedi's heart. So yeah, now I've said that, let's go into our overall feelings about the book and because I've just done a lot of reading I'm going to turn it over to you Kirsty. <laughs> so yeah what are your overall thoughts about the book just talking about it in a general way so obviously we're going to go on to some of the particulars in a minute. I liked it I didn't love it mm-hmm. um, and for the first few chapters I was a bit like oh is this going to be for me mm. um, because it is jumping around a lot and it's you know it has a tough task because it is kind of setting the scene um not only for this entirely new era to us within the star wars universe but like just the context of this great disaster it's such a big broad story and obviously affects 
billions of people in the galaxy, um, directly and indirectly. So there's just a lot going on. And as it was jumping around, and it's obviously very much a conscious choice in those first few chapters to be jumping from like ship to ship almost and kind of focusing on all of these different characters. And a lot of them are also dying <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yes. Um, I was just like, oh, I, I'm struggling to find something to grab onto here and stay invested. And it did eventually get into it, obviously, as kind of like the Jedi are introduced at various stages and things. Um, really, and probably somewhat predictably, it was the villains that got to me. Yeah. Um, they're kind of what I ended up coming away thinking about. And I don't know if that was the intent. They just seemed a lot more compelling to me in terms of where the stories might go in future like kind of setting the scene for what the conflict is obviously going to be going forward um it wasn't really like the disaster itself it's kind of the knock-on effects of that and how it affected the um order of is it the nile is that how you pronounce it yeah that's a good question i've been saying it like that because i think of them as nihilists i like your logic i'm gonna adopt it from here on out (laughs) they they had like a fun Mad Max vibe to me. That, yes. Yeah, it, it just grabbed me. Um, they're obviously despicable people, but it was interesting, and I kind of wanted to see more of what was going on there. Um, the Jedi, I'm a bit kind of mixed on. I think there was mm. some hit and miss with the characterization, and I'm just not about goody goody Jedi. So yeah. the ones that had a bit more edge <laughs> were more appealing to me. But it's early days, you know, we're at the beginning of these characters' stories, so they really could go anywhere. Yeah. No, like, I think I'd echo a lot of what you're saying, um, predictably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, like, I did really enjoy the book, um, but I did have that same thing where early on it's just so vast in scope and it was difficult to find anyone to really, like, glom onto, like, on an individual human level. Mm. Because I'm all about like finding a character to be my access point to a story for example because the reason why this podcast exists to a large extent i think is that both of us like got really attached to the characters in the force awakens you know specifically like ray finn and kylo and we really like glommed onto them in this like really like intense personal way and we viewed them as like our paths through that story you know and it became very like intimate when you considered the story through their perspectives and Light of the Jedi, it's not a bad thing, but it's not doing that. You know, it's not about having like a point of view character who you're really taken on a journey with. It's very much about establishing this new era in the timeline for Star Wars and introducing you to this huge roster of characters and essentially setting up like the fundamental groundwork for them. So, like, it establishes, like, basic connections, like, whose master is who, whose padawan is who, like, what are the friendships, what are the tensions, what are the, like, characters' strengths and weaknesses, how do the characters perceive the force. And then with the villains, it's very much about establishing them as a credible threat and, like, building them up so that you can really, like, buy them as, like, a proper opposing force to the Jedi. Um, and yeah we'll go into that more later on when we talk about them in a bit more depth because yeah they really start out as this like disorganized rabble and you're like how is this in any way meant to be intimidating to like thousands of fully trained Jedi (laughs) because yeah you just don't take them seriously essentially 
but then as the book goes on they become more and more compelling and you start to understand essentially why the plot is like it is because it begins with this great catastrophe or or i think it's called the great disaster in the book itself um and at first you're like wow this is like a very action heavy epic way to start the narrative but then as it all unfolds you realize that it's not just like an arbitrary one-off thing that everyone's going to move on from the whole reason that happened is to drive home the stakes and make you appreciate what a danger the villains are which yeah it's quite effective because then it means you're going into the future stories with a very keen awareness of that's the potential cost of the jedi losing in this situation but yeah essentially it's all about building up these stakes and making you take the villain seriously as a credible threat to the jedi and i think it's really effective on those terms but having said all that i really need to see future stories set in this era like have a much more like intimate character focused approach to the storytelling because i think this is great as a kickoff to the whole thing and it does exactly what it needs to do but i think in order to keep my interest it needs to tell those like more personal stories and like reduce the scope a little bit yeah so i guess we kind of just have to wait and see what's going to be developed because that's the other thing about you know reading about these characters it's like oh it's hard to know who to get invested in because we don't know who for sure is going to get their own novels to come yeah um i I mean i assume that avar and elza will be featured together elsewhere because they're setting up that relationship for a reason but yeah and one thing i will say is i'm currently reading into the dark and that is like very encouraging to me in relation to everything i've just said because there's still like a significant cast you know it's not like an intimate chamber piece with like three characters um but yeah it's much more closely focused on the lead character and his relationships with like a small group of other characters and yeah i'm really enjoying that and it's by claudia gray and she really nails the like human aspects of star wars and the relationship aspects so yeah i'm really enjoying that and i'm excited for you to be able to read it too kirsty yeah so to move on slightly i'd like to talk a little bit about the world building so was it just me kirsty or did you get major like imperialism vibes and like colonialism vibes in terms of the whole concept of starlight beacon and this idea that the chancellor has and the jedi have of like spreading their light to the farthest reaches of the galaxy like and i know that it's framed as a very benevolent like lovely thing to do but you also sense that it's very much been imposed on people who don't necessarily want anything to do with them and yeah i thought there were some interesting real world implications to that yeah that was one of the things that kind of leapt out as they were first introducing the project um like before we'd even got the book i was like wow like those vibes are pretty strong um are they intentional and will they be played with and explored critically in the text itself and i'm i'm still in two minds about that because obviously this is an introductory novel and maybe it's by design that those things would be presented as forces for good here because we're kind of getting the golden age jedi perspective and you get challenges to it obviously in characters who i guess are positioned as villains or at least like not not necessarily central villains but like bad people who are daring to go against the jedi ethos and 
and challenging their spread across the galaxy and that's that's positioned as a bad thing to do um mm. so kind of interested and a little worried <laughs> to see where that goes um a bit skeptical yeah i have to say on on how far they can go with something like that yeah it's like i don't know if it's just me being like more cynical than i should be but it resonated with me Kirsty, what you were saying about like a lot of the jelly being very goody two shoes <laughs> kind of in the book and yeah that did really stand out to me and i think i was fine with it here because yeah as we've both said it's very much like a starting point and i think there's room for them to be messier and more complex as the stories go on i think if we're like four novels in and everyone is all being heroic and they're not showing like any sign of like inner conflict or turmoil over the pressure of being this like shining like hero all the time like then i'll start to get a little bit bored and disengaged to be honest um because yeah i i like to see people be messy and vulnerable and complex and i think you see the seeds of that with certain aspects of the light of the jedi but they don't come to fruition here um and yeah, I think it's a similar thing with the world building and the tone with which things like Starlight Beacon are spoken about. Um, because yeah, it does seem a bit almost too treacly to me, like it's done in a really self-conscious way. Like I'll just read out the quote I have. So Starlight Beacon finally finished after a lengthy, challenging construction process. The huge way station was built to serve many purposes, a Republic embassy that could also serve as a fortress if necessary a projection of security presence to discourage raider and marauder activity, a Jedi outpost containing the largest single contingent outside the Coruscant Temple itself, where they would research and teach and listen for the guidance of the Force, cultural spaces showcasing the beauty of the many worlds making up the sector, a communications relay that would boost transmission times in the region by a factor of ten, the most state-of-the-art medical facilities in the Outer Rim, and yeah like just that description that gives you a flavor for the sort of thing that's being planned and it just like reminds me of like the great exhibition in victorian times in london Mm -hmm. and yeah just saying oh look at how wonderful we are and all our accomplishments and yeah there's no acknowledgement of the messiness inherent in like an enterprise like the republic yeah and i I guess it's clear at that point that that is very much the chancellor's perspective right yeah and it's kind of drilled in by the end of the book that she is going to stake her political career on this spreading of the jedi ethos slash Mm. like with the republic like that's that's kind of going to be her legacy or at least what she hopes it will be um so i i almost think like they're setting it up too much for it to not Um, backfire in some way or at least become an issue that paves the way for what we see in the phantom menace because if we're if we're seeing now them at the height of their golden age then it that kind of means that that has to inevitably decline yeah right so yeah so um, one of the greatest sins of the prequel jedi was complacency wasn't it was this feeling of like stagnation and like oh we're so perfect and we're so like valuable and necessary that we're always going to exist kind of and there wasn't true acknowledgement of the like dangers and the threats that they faced um and yeah like it's going to be interesting to see how the high republic leads into that basically it's another thing to mention in terms of the dynamics going on in this book 
is that the Jedi, they're allied with the Republic, so they work alongside them, but they don't work for them. And in the prequels, they essentially work for the Republic, basically. And yeah, I imagine that's sort the sort of shift that we're going to see chronicled over this series. I might be wrong, but mm. yeah, it would be interesting. Yeah, one of the interesting ways that, as you called it, complacency seems to be explored in in the book. And again, this is something that I couldn't tell entirely whether it was conscious or not, but they kept making references to Yoda. And obviously we don't see him directly, but the way that Yoda was mentioned a lot of the time, like they were quoting him having echoes of what we know he says in the original trilogy and in the prequels and stuff. And it's like, did Yoda really ever evolve and grow as a character? Or is he stuck saying the same things he's always said for hundreds of years? <laughs> is that like a conscious choice of Charles Sauls to kind of illustrate one of the problems that the Jedi have is that they just kind of echo the same empty platitudes um, rather than kind of evolving with the times, which is obviously something that Yoda fails to do. And we see that pretty explicitly in, in the prequels, right? Yeah. There is this stagnation and kind of ivory towerness to them. Um, so I, I couldn't tell if that was like a conscious thing or not, but I did find it funny every time Yoda kind of popped up as <laughs> something that the, the Jedi were thinking about. <laughs> oh, good old Yoda. He's always been there. <laughs> it was just a bit too much sometimes when they were like, oh, what does he say? We're not this crude matter. It's like, oh, is that a famous saying of Yoda's? Does he say <laughs> yeah. it a lot? <laughs> Can you go to the um, Jedi Temple gift shop and buy the t-shirt with that saying on it? <laughs> so when we jump ahead to Empire and he's like reciting it out to Luke, it's like, it's just his standard lesson that he issues to the Padawans. <laughs> That's actually really funny, because Luke's like, whoa, that's so <laughs> profound. <laughs> I know, I've been working on that one for hundreds of years. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's so delightful. Um, yeah, no, like, there's, again, and I think all this is what makes it hard to have this discussion now, because I think we'll be able to have a much richer perspective on this book in the future when we can see what these characters end up doing and how they evolve over the course of subsequent books. Right. But yeah. On the subject of characters, there's a few I'd like to talk about specifically. And you might want to talk about ones in addition to the ones I've highlighted, Kirsty. You'll see I've included a helpful and somewhat nightmarish infographic at the start, <laughs> like in setting out how all the characters are interrelated. Um, which, yeah, is useful. And it's the sort of thing I kind of wish would be printed at the start of every book. Because, yeah, then you could just like flip back if you're ever confused. But, yeah, we're not even going to attempt to talk through that. Because it would just be a total nightmare. And, yeah, not today, Satan. Yeah, um, as I was reading it, I just kind of accepted that I wouldn't remember every character name. And I just, I just kind of went with it and just had to hold on to what I could. Yeah. But... Yeah, inevitably there'll be details and people that get mixed up. Exactly. Yeah. So please do forgive us if we like fumble a bit with it because, yeah, there's a lot of names and it's been a few weeks since we um both read the book. Um, but yeah, obviously the most prominent Jedi slash hero character in the book is probably Ava Chris. And to be honest, with that said, I was honestly surprised by how much she's not in it. So there are huge swaths of the book where she's just completely absent from them. And that's by design, just to, due to the nature of it constantly switching focus between planets and different groups of characters. So, yeah, she doesn't get a huge amount of focus in the book, but she's still 
pretty prominent. Um, yeah, what was your overall feelings about this character specifically, Kirsty? Uh, she seems pretty private mm-hmm. and, you know, cl- closely guards her emotions and um, probably keeps things to herself. But I'm intrigued by her relationship with Elsa because it does yep. seem like there's some romantic undertones to that, but in a, oh, we can't forbidden Jedi romance way. And it's like, are they going to be kind of a foil to Anakin and Padme almost? And that actually, or I guess kind of like an Obi-Wan and Satine in that they they don't, but it doesn't mean that they don't have feelings for each other. It's just they don't act on them because they hold other things um, to a, a higher value. So um, it, even, even if they don't, I still think that, that relationship is really interesting. Um, yeah, and yeah, she's one of the characters that I do kind of see as goody goody, but it doesn't mean that she'll always be that way. I do think there's potential there for a bit of an edge and maybe some future disillusion, depending on what kind of effects the Great Disaster has on kind of the reshuffling with the Nile and and March and taking over there. Like, what is that going to mean for Ava's future? I do think there's potential there for some real conflict and struggle. Yeah. So do you want to hear my like ridiculously premature like theorizing for what might go on with like Ava and Elzar and yeah. And also yeah. Stellan, who I believe is gonna be the protagonist of the next novel by Kevin Scott. Which one's um, Stellan again? He doesn't really appear in Light of the Jedi. Um okay. but he's mentioned in the context of when Ava was like a young Padawan, she had two close friends and they were Stellan and Elzar. Oh, and so there were like the three of them basically and they oh, shared see. this kind of bond. And so on the basis of that extremely limited information, I'm extrapolating that you'll have like a Lancelot, Guinevere and Arthur situation where I don't really know much about Stellan at this point, but let's say he's King Arthur. Then like Ava is Guinevere and then Elzar is Lancelot because like Elzar, which we'll go into a bit more, he's like the renegade. You know, he's the one who like uses the force in like edgy ways that the council <laughs> isn't particularly thrilled about. And yeah, he's a bit of like a like rogue outsider type Jedi. Um, whereas like Ava is like the goody two shoes and is like very much this like icon of everything that a Jedi should be. You know, she's like this perfect model Jedi. And I could see that if there were to be this like forbidden relationship between Ava and Elzar, that might lead to some much more like profound cracking in like the structure and fibre of the Jedi Order. Because, you know, if someone like Ava could like fall because of like emotional attachment, which is an absolute no no for the Jedi. I could see that like really causing these rifts and sowing chaos, basically, with the wider organisation. And that's kind of what happens in the Orphirian legends. When there's that forbidden relationship between Guinevere and Lancelot, it kind of shatters that like dream of Camelot, you know, as this like perfect organisation that represents everything that's good in the kingdom. And it just shows like all the human frailty and weakness. And I really hope they do something like that because these characters can't stay as perfect as they are now. I'm like, I'm sorry. We just need more drama. I want all the forbidden love affairs, please. Well, I hope you're right. Thank you. (laughs) So do you like my theory? Yeah. Yay! I'm trying to keep my expectations in check because maybe they do just want to show the Jedi in their prime and that's it. But um, yeah, there's all this stuff like that's unsaid between these characters. It's hard to 
um, pick out specific things and obviously it has been a few weeks since I read it but there's just this like sense to their interactions that there's a lot that's unsaid um, and that they do have this long history together um, so it it is setting things up potentially to be very intriguing but exactly as you said earlier it almost feels kind of um, premature to be judging the story on what we have because we don't know where it's going to go yeah and like you're right that it's dangerous for me to be building up these like wild fantasies about well what they no could be doing with the characters it's not dangerous like it's fair <laughs> to be like oh it'd be really cool if they did this but <laughs> yeah no it's true I, i'm not putting myself in mortal peril by like making fan fiction about them as like orphurian characters but yeah i guess it's potentially it might lead to disappointment i suppose if they do something a little bit less radical it would be a bit characters. disappointing to me if they didn't explore that element to Ava and El- Elzar's relationship further, because then it's like, why bother putting it in here? Yeah, I feel that's... like it's laid on a bit too thick, to be honest, for them to yeah. like go nowhere with it. Like, um, just to briefly explain, so after the great disaster happens, and there's basically this investigation to try and find out what the hell just happened, basically, and so Ava is appointed like as the person in charge. And she chooses Elzar to like work with her on the investigation, basically. And there's an interesting little paragraph that explains her reasoning. So, now, why had she done that? Elza thought he knew. He and Ava had a history, sure, and worked well together. And he was good with many force techniques, including some pretty obscure ones. But he didn't believe any of those were the reason. Plenty of, plenty of other Jedi were just as qualified as he was. Elzar figured Ava picked him because doing well on this mission could help him attain the only real achievement he cared about within the Jedi, making Master. When you were a Master, you could pursue your own studies, move forward through the Force on your own terms. In fact, the Council expected Masters to do exactly that. It sounded like paradise, but a paradise that had thus far remained elusive. Doing well with the Legacy Run investigation showed the Council that he could help the Order with its goals just as much as his own. It could make a huge difference. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily hint at anything romantic at all. But it does show that idea of Ava prioritising her personal loyalties to her friend. And feeling a sense of obligation to help him. Because he's still a knight at this point and desperately wants to become a master. And so she gives him this opportunity to help him. Yeah, which doesn't sound like much out of context. But... The Jedi seems so repressed and there's this sense of like, um, you know, there shouldn't be any true sense of individualism for them or like yeah. any emphasis on personal desire. It should be all about their commitment to the Order and to the Force. So yes. even the significance of her making that choice for the sake of Elzar's personal ambitions would be a huge deal. Exactly. Like, it it sounds something like something that... where if she were to discuss it with like Yoda or another member of the council, they would be like, you know, do not do that under any circumstances. But right. yeah, and that's the sort of thing where it's subtle. It's not explicitly stated in the terms that we're speaking about it. But I do think that's what's going on. And that's intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, most imp- intriguingly from the romantic foreshadowing perspective... Um, Ava and Elzar get sent to Varakino together, which is where Anakin and Padme go and attack the clones. 
So it's quite possibly the most romantic place in the galaxy. Um, and there's also this lovely moment where Ava is thinking to herself, quiet contemplation could wait for retirement. And for a moment, just one, she let herself consider the idea of spending that time with Elsa Mann. Something she would never tell him. He would never let her hear the end of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's pretty on the nose. I think, you know, if you want to spend your whole retirement with someone, you're a little bit more than just... Just as roommates. (laughs) Exactly. I just really like your company. And nothing wrong with that, guys. Nothing wrong with platonic relationships. But I think cumulatively, this is all signaling something quite clear, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm interested to see where this stuff goes. Yep. 100%. Um, and yeah, then I have less to say about them, but they're two of the other characters that stood out to me somewhat, um, which was Loden Greatstorm and his Padawan Bell Setifar. Um, and yeah, the main reason they stood out to me was I really felt sorry for Bell because he's just repeatedly put into these really shitty situations <laughs> where, <laughs> where Loden's like, well, you can learn on the job. And he like pushes him out of a um, transport and... Yeah, I'm just like, God, I'm really glad I'm not a Jedi Padawan. I would have just been like way too weak source for this. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that Loden is considered one of the best Jedi teachers <laughs> and that he's just constantly throwing Bell in at the deep end. <laughs> literally, just <laughs> pushing yeah, him off. Literally Learn to in. fly, please. <laughs> it's time. Oh my gosh. But I like their relationship. You know, I like the banter. It was fun. Um Loden does seem like a, an intriguing character because he does have this sense of humour to him but there's also this real sense of you know he's one of the most impressive experienced Jedi and of course the what happens later with him and March and like it is it's setting a big rivalry up I think yeah exactly so I feel like one of the big shocks in the book is that Loden gets captured and there's basically this like elaborate kidnapping plot where the Jedi are lured to this remote like homesteader planet and it's essentially just a ruse to kidnap a Jedi and we learn eventually that Marchie and Roe the like new leader of the Neil um, he basically wanted it done and he clearly has some sort of beef with the Jedi but it's mm. never fully articulated what that beef with the Jedi is yeah, to the best of mention... my recollection <laughs> I think he mentioned something about his dad, like they did something to him. Yes, I think it's framed as some sort of like family grudge, but yeah. we don't have the particulars essentially. Um, but yeah, it's greater than himself. Yeah, uh, and you get the sense as well when it's Loden that's captured. He was just kind of expecting any old Jedi. He didn't realize that it would be him, and that was a real boon. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh wow, you got a really top tier one. Well done, guys. <laughs> No, Marchin's not the kind of guy to hand up praise like that. Um, and yeah, this isn't really like main characters, but I was very pleased to see a, a sort of Santeca name drop as well. <laughs> um, like because yeah, I liked that because it kind of gives context to where Law Santeca, who's obviously a character in The Force Awakens, where he comes from, mm. and what his whole deal was in terms of like the map making and just exploring the galaxy and stuff and. Yeah, yeah it's like his family, family business. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just a hobby, but there it goes. It was what it was brought up in all along. Um, and yeah, they were surprisingly important um, because there's this whole thing where a member of the Santeca 
family has this strange ability where they can I, and I still don't fully understand it but they can sort of like chart paths through hyperspace and they're kidnapped by Marchie and Ro's ancestors and now Marchie and Ro is using that person's ability to further his own goals and his own advancement within the Nihil and yeah it's an interesting sort of concept and is actually kind of horrific in how it's described it's like this 100 year old person like who's only kept alive through like mechanical ventilation <laughs> and is completely exploited and mm. yeah it's a bit gross what did you think about that whole thing Kirsty? yeah it was pretty horrifying it's basically some a form of elder abuse right <laughs> yes elder abuse on steroids like she, she's obviously not um lucid in a way that you know you can understand like she's clearly not really fully aware of what's happening to her or how she's being exploited yeah so it's yeah it's pretty awful he's obviously not a nice guy exactly yeah especially because it's made clear that that's basically her entire life like i think it says she was kidnapped when she was six Mm. and it's like god that i'm not sure that sort of life is worth living even yeah and yeah it's pretty grim um and then we've got the chancellor of the republic who's a woman which is nice i'm I'm all about that like equality between genders um and that's lena so and i mainly wanted to bring her up because there's the most epic concept art of her with her two um like lion friends basically and they're the coolest looking creatures <laughs> I've seen from Star Wars in a long time. And I know there's a specific name for the species, but they're basically lions. They're like alien lions. And yeah, they're just badass. Aren't they amazing, Kirsty? Yeah. Pretty striking. Yeah. I love them. One's yellow, one's red, guys. So I recommend that you go and look it up. Lena So Concept Heart is worth looking at. Um,. And yeah, I think that character has very much been set up as a whole pride before the fall thing. So mm. there's all these like grand designs and great ideas for what the Republic might become and how it can expand and embrace the outer rim into its benevolent arms. And I think it's all going to go tits up, to be honest. Yeah, and I feel like the way that they were describing Coruscant as the capital was also pretty potentially indicative of, of where things are going to go with like paving over nature and and then maybe ha- having like a, a bit of it still per- persevering somehow but mm. um yeah kind of the effects of as you were saying like that spread of the the jedi order and its belief system across the galaxy what's that g- going to mean for um other cultures out there yeah exactly and do they want to be drawn into that system because yeah with the nihil it definitely seems like they do not want to be drawn into the system so yeah and yeah on the subject of Nihil so and I know I'm being all over the place with the pronunciation now but my brain just can't make it work for whatever reason so it's fine um but yeah I think as we said at the beginning like I think the villains were probably the most intriguing aspect of this book yeah what did you like about them in particular Kirsty? I liked that they were just clearly in over their head and everything happened by accident, but then they were obviously opportunistic. They grabbed onto it and kind of took credit for everything and acted as if it was all intentional. And then it just kind of had this big crashing domino effect that they couldn't have anticipated. And it's, it's kind of just 
escalated to the nth degree and Marchan is like desperately trying to the wrestle that control but I'm just not sure he's going to be able to because it's clearly like going beyond him already mm. there's so much else going on around him there's so much chaos like that's kind of what they're defined by um, I was a bit confused uh, they were going between like the different oh there's the tempest and there's the storm and there's the cloud like all of this kind of jargon that yeah. I just couldn't make heads or tail of and I was like I'm not even gonna try and pay attention to all that stuff um, just kind of go with the characters and see what they want and yeah they're obviously all terrible and out for themselves but there was I don't know if this was just me but I did feel sympathetic to them to an extent because like you said no one asked them if they were okay with all of this stuff happening to the galaxy and not just them but like regular civilians you know yeah. so it's kind of like they're representative of that baser impulse that a lot of well-behaved citizens might be privately feeling on the inside like skepticism and um i don't know just yeah a less than positive um view of the jedi and and what they're doing yeah no, 100%. Like, I feel like they obviously take it to an extreme because they're, like, out there, like, raiding people and murdering people and just doing bad stuff. But a big part of why they're interesting to follow as a faction is because, to some extent, they do have a legitimate point of view because the Jedi are, like, encroaching on their home, basically, and trying to, like, enforce this new, like, way of operating that was never asked for or potentially even wanted in these quarters of the galaxy. And, like, I might be completely wrong here and I'd appreciate an email from people explaining if I'm wrong, but I feel like even up to the sequel trilogy era, the Alsa Rim is still pretty much, like, just doing its own thing and it's, like, out of the control of the core and the, like, main Republic. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, you definitely get that sense for a planet like Jakku, right? Yeah. No, exactly. And that kind of shows that whatever the Jedi and the Republic are attempting to do in this era, like a few hundred years before the Phantom Menace, it basically fails. It doesn't work. So, yeah, that alone, like knowing that whatever Starlight Beacon was meant to do, it apparently isn't a thing anymore after a few hundred years. I really want to see what goes wrong with all this and I think we're clearly seeing the groundwork of what goes wrong and really this all just demonstrates why you need pro very clear and well laid out consultation if you're going to do anything to this extent so <laughs> yeah it's a good teaching moment for everyone especially the Jedi um, and yeah so should we talk about Martian a little bit <laughs> yeah um yeah, so I'm going to read out briefly the description because you've got to have a visual of your villain. Basically, the aesthetic is very important. He wore a mask too, but not like the others. That has serious, I'm not like other girls energy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did have that sense of being above the rest of them, didn't he? He did. Even before he was, yeah. he was just like looking down on them and he thought they were stupid. And... Yeah. Exactly. He was clearly unimpressed to be part of them, kind of. Um, so yeah, that works. Um, his mask was unique, even in the Great Hall of the Nihil. Smoked transparistil, what a word, with a single symbol slashed into it. A primitive 
brutalist etching, swells and lines that evoked a stylized planet-killing superstorm as seen from space, with its central eye centred roughly over his face. His clothes were simple, black pants and jackets over a sleeveless white tunic, and tight leather gloves, so I love the tightness, with padding each knuckle. <laughs> his limbs were long, and what parts of his skin were visible were slate grey. Meow. He wore no obvious weapons. So yeah, I'm assuming he's not a human. I don't think his species is specified in the book, but unless he's like in very bad health, he wouldn't have <laughs> slate grey skin as a human. Yeah, you get the impression that he doesn't see a lot of daylight, but that's true of a lot of characters. Um, so, yeah, he, he does sound like he's not human. And people probably know for sure either way, but we don't. We're just getting that impression. Yeah, exactly. And basically his whole deal, um, which I touched upon earlier when talking about the Santecas, is that he's like the eye of the Nihil. So that means he has the ability to, like give the marauders new paths through hyperspace and they then use the paths to like carry out raids and just surprise their targets essentially but of course they're not his paths yes but they're not his paths because <laughs> they're Mary Santeca's paths but no one else knows that do you think this secret is going to come out I would be shocked if it didn't I hope <laughs> that they realize that he's just this big con man and has yes, of his it's own. true. That's what it is, really, isn't it? It's like, oh, I'm so special. It's like, mm, not really. Aren't they questioning him, like, how he gets things? Aren't they yeah. suspicious? I feel like Lorna does, actually. Yeah. I'd need to go back and read it, but I sense he's not particularly well-liked, which isn't surprising, since he comes across as extremely misanthropic. Um, and I'm, he definitely doesn't seem like a dude who's interested in making friends. No. <laughs> I think he's just interested in like power and dominance and like getting revenge essentially for the perceived wrongs that have been done to him and his family in the past. Yeah, like it's all about like appearance, I think, with this character and taking advantage of the moment. And he's clever at doing that. And that's why he comes out on top, basically, by the end of the book. And yeah, one of the most funny things to me was that at the end of it, he has like the typical villain monologue where he has Loading Great Storm imprisoned and he literally says, you want my grand plan, Jedi? I don't do that. Plans can fail at any step along the way. I have a goal and goals can be achieved in any number of ways. As long as you get to where you want to in the end, the roads you took don't matter. It's all the same path. And then he basically goes on to give Lord of Greystorm his plan. Yeah, I don't quite understand. He's like, there's a difference between plans and goals. Like, is there? <laughs> really? I, I feel like they're just arguing over semantics at that point. And it just becomes a bit silly. But yeah, it's quite entertaining. And I like it when villains do that whole moustache twirling thing. You know, it's like, <laughs> I get a kind of... Like childish to glee from it, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Do you think that um, Loden and Marchin are going to kind of have this personal rivalry set up from now on, like here? Because this is pretty intense conversation that they have here, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like they must. Yeah. Sorry, I was only sniggering, so I thought you were going to say, are they going to kiss? <laughs> it's like, no, maybe. I don't think that's on the cards. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see the shadowing for that. That's just my deranged brain. Um, 
but yeah I feel like it's got to be pretty personal and I'm curious about what is going to go on with Loden from here because presumably he has to escape somehow it's either that or death really isn't it so my bet would be on him being freed and yet then when he's freed he would be like hunting this guy down with a total vengeance and yeah because Marchion unintelligently like has spewed a bunch of what his deal is to Loden Loden would have the advantage of like knowing like what he's pursuing to some extent and yeah that would make him quite a formidable foe I think because he understands the target in a way the other Jedi don't Hmm. so yeah that's going to be an interesting dynamic to follow in the future stories um, and yeah, I'm just curious to see how long Marchion can hold on to control of the organisation, really. Because yeah, as you said, Kirsty, it does all seem very tenuous. And I think he makes a good progression over the course of the novel in terms of like selling himself as like quite an intimidating leader. You know, he does lots of scary villainous stuff. But I feel like he could be toppled with surprising ease. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how long he is in the top spot. Yeah, I think it's it's telling that the Nile themselves don't really stand for anything. Like, that's kind of their thing, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's this weird, like, perception of that as anarchy, but whatever. It's, it's, it's the common notion here that, like, there is this, like, void of morality that he's, like, taken advantage of. Mm. But just as easily, that can be completely taken out of his control. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see how he manages to hold on to that if he does. Um, and and kind of what vulnerabilities he's gonna um, exploit and to hold on to that because yeah what what is he going to stoke in the Nile that will kind of motivate them as they evolve because they do evolve quite a lot over the course of this book they do you're right and yeah it's interesting to see him try to give them some sort of unifying identity by the end of it because at the end of the book and again if this is if i'm recalling correctly there's like a scene where he's basically asserting his authority as the new leader and yeah. he gets them all to chant we are the nihel you know and it's like this distorted echo of the jedi and people from the republic saying we are the republic mm. and stuff and yeah it's necessary because without that sort of shared message and shared understanding nothing's going to hold together essentially so we'll see how long that remains in place Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm interested to see when we get a story well uh, there might be some in the comics already actually i don't know about that focuses on march on um because obviously we have the lorna one coming out the audio drama maybe he'll be in that or maybe it kind of takes place much earlier before she is familiar with him as a character I think actually on Cavan's site he said that it takes place after his novel, which is oh. the sequel to Light of the Jedi. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's definitely after the events of Light of the okay, Jedi. Okay, cool. So he's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, he's going to be discussed by other characters. Let's put it that way. And yeah, hopefully featured because he's one of the most interesting. Hmm. Um. Okay, then we have an epilogue and there's just a few things I wanted to briefly discuss in relation to this because you know I love foreshadowing and it's fun to just briefly talk about where things might be going from here so yeah, could you read out the first quote I've highlighted in the notes Kirsty mm-hmm. true the jump from Padawan to Jedi Knight 
that's where it all really sinks in. The choice of it. Her voice trailed off. Elzar suspected they were both thinking about the same thing. Shared moments as Padawans, tolerated and understood and even common, but things to be left behind once one ascended to become an adult in the Order. They hadn't discussed those moments, not in a very long time, and never with more than an oblique reference, but they were never very far away from the other's mind, especially when they were together. Those times, many years in the past, seemed very present just then. Ava stopped. It took Elzar a step to realise she wasn't keeping pace, and he turned to look back at her. He raised an eyebrow. She held out her hand. He took it, held it up, looked at it, then looked at Avar Chris, his friend. The look she gave him was like that sea he found inside himself, the force, deep and endless and impossible to fully comprehend. You could drown in it. We are Jedi, he said. We are, she replied. She looked away and let go of his hand, and he was no longer drowning, but perhaps some part of him wished he was. <laughs> it's like, guys... Come on, this is just ridiculous. It's very dramatic. <laughs> it is very dramatic, yeah. Like, I think there's no way this is staying repressed, basically. <laughs> it's like, come on, it's so repressed right now. Like, they're going to have to put them in straitjackets to repress it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, guys, and oh, this just, it drives me nuts when I read this sort of thing because. I'm just, I hate the no attachment thing with the Jedi. I just think it's the most bullshit rule. I think we're meant to be critical of it. Yeah, I do think we're meant to be critical of it now. I'm not sure George Lucas wanted us to be critical of it in the prequels, in terms of how it was framed in those films, which is obviously where it was first really introduced. I think it's, I think it's about like what, counts as love and what counts as possessive attachment that causes you to abandon your morality in order to save someone you yeah. know it's like if you're going to give up the world for a person as in like sacrifice everyone else around you is that a good thing is that how love should should be probably not yeah no it is very true and i guess the problem with the jedi is there's no like middle ground of them basically is like I get the impression you're allowed to have basically like commitment free sex. Like, yay. It's the idea that like romantic entanglements are like completely forbidden. You know, that like romantic emotional connection is just the big no no, basically. Well, yeah, and because Anakin grew up within that order, there was no one actually able to show him the healthy way to form relationships yeah. and, and love people, right? Because they were all kind of in the same boat. So if he'd grown up with Shmi, maybe it would have been different. But he had Obi-Wan, who had to kind of go on a similar thing, where he had to say no to Satine. And he had people like Yoda, who was just like, deal with it, whatever. <laughs> Yoda's whole response is basically like one big meh. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just curious to see how the eventual like eruption of all this is going to be framed. You know, whether it's going to be framed in like a sympathetic way, you know, like actually, yeah, it is bullshit that, that the Jedi ban people from having these like profound emotional relationships with each other, you know, these like romantic feelings, you know, it's just the suppression of natural impulses and it's wrong and it's immoral. Or if it will be more like, oh, these people, look at them, they're corrupting the Jedi, you know, I feel like they, they will show it with sympathy on the basis of how it's been alluded to in this book. But mm. yeah, it'll be interesting. Me too. I think we're supposed to like these characters. So 
No, exactly. I don't think they're pos- being positioned as as selfish. You know, they're trying to do their duty here. But... Yeah, exactly. Which alone shows a great deal of empathy for them. Um, okay, and then there is an ominous vision that Elsa has also in the epilogue. Could you just quickly read that out, Kirsty? The force seized his mind. Awful visions flashed before his eyes, things he could not understand, cast in a sickly purple light. Jedi, many he knew, friends and colleagues, horribly mutilated, fighting battles they could not win against awful things that lived in the dark, things that lived in the deep. The Jedi, those who survived, were fleeing, not retreating, but fleeing. The vision spiked into his mind, the Force screaming some sort of warning or prophecy at him, shearing through his consciousness, and they would not stop. Elsa fell to his knees, blood dripping from his nose. This did not feel like an unknowable, avoidable vision of the future. This felt inevitable, certain. Evil horror sweeping across the galaxy like the tide. He saw Jedi dying, screaming, and himself last of all, unable to escape what was coming. Slowly, agonisingly, the vision receded. Elsa returned to himself. He gasped and more blood spattered the deck. What had he just seen? What had he seen? The worst was not the chaos, the battles, the pain, the unknown, monstrous horrors surging out of the dark. It was what he had seen on the face of every single Jedi the Force had shown him. The greatest enemy of all. Fear. Yeah. So that's quite the way to end the book. (laughs) I think it's safe to say. And yeah, that does leave me very intrigued because... I feel like whatever this is a like omen or foreseeing of, it doesn't sound like the Nihil to me. Like, I know that they have this scary ability now with the hyperspace lanes and stuff, and there's a, the ability to cause a great deal of damage because of that. But this sounds like some different sort of enemy that's about to arrive on the scene. Like, what do you think about this, Kirsty? Yeah, if anything, this sounds like a Force-sensitive enemy. Like, mm. you know, the Sith or some form of dark side power. Yeah. Um, because with the whole hyperspace thing, with the fact that we've already had, like, the Great Disaster or Big Disaster, whatever it's called, like, that's kind of set the scene for that. We have expectations for that now. So this does seem like something else completely. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly this emerges. Because I know that they've discussed the High Republic being a really long-running publishing initiative and yeah spanning decades and decades in the storytelling so i just hope we don't wait too long to see this come in so i do think the knee hill are good villains and i do like them but i feel like ultimately they're probably going to feel a little bit small fry you know before too long and yeah i feel like they need to throw in like other antagonistic factions i suppose to keep everyone on their toes but yeah, we'll see. And the Nihil might surprise me in terms of developing more as a formidable presence. So yeah, all will be revealed. Yeah, I feel like I know so little about what Marchan actually wants at this point that it's impossible to judge him in terms of what his legacy as a villain will be. Yeah. Um, Or like who they would end up teaming up with or what they'll eventually stand for and be able to do. Because I don't know if this was meant to be like a literal vision that he was seeing or if it's him looking further into the future and seeing like a version of order 66 or something you know right yeah hard to know exactly and yeah i think the next novel is coming out in the summer which given that we're now in april that will come around terrifyingly fast 
So yeah, hopefully more answers will be revealed soonish. Do we know anything about that one yet? That is a good question. It's That's Kevin good. Scott, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's by Kevin Scott, and it's called The Rising Storm. Okay. I'll just see if I can find a synopsis. It's about Stellan, who's the character I mentioned earlier, who's another friend of Ava's. Um, yeah, it looks like we don't have anything really apart from it being about Stellan. The plot description is just the adventures of the Jedi of the High Republic era continue in this okay. Star Wars novel. <laughs> so highly illuminating. <laughs> and yeah, Stellan Gios is just like a generic looking hot guy, which <laughs> right. isn't bad, but yeah, just generic looking cutie. Just just give them some edge, okay? That's... <laughs> And I'm exactly. sure this must be a common fan reaction to this. It's like, it was entertaining. I enjoyed it. You know, there's there's stuff here that they can really choose to go all in on. Um, it's just it had to set the scenes. So there's like, there are interesting elements. We just don't know where they're going to go or if they're going to go anywhere at all. So Exactly. Yeah, I think the main feeling you leave the book with is like a feeling of anticipation, which is exactly what it should do, because obviously it's the first book in this like epic series. But also like a sense of mild frustration and like, I need to know what happens to these people. Like, this is obviously the starting point. This is where we meet them. But like, how do they develop? Where do they go from here? And really, it's good that we're asking those questions. You know, like, it's nice that we're engaged like that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out more. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, um, so I was I was impressed. Yeah. Because it's got to be difficult to kind of kick off this whole entire, entirely new era of Star Wars. Yeah. It was, it was a well-written book. No, definitely. And just the sheer level of planning and organisation that must go into creating something like this you know it's so intricate with all the different planets and the different technologies and the different factions and stuff keeping your head around it as you're writing I just it's dizzying to me to even imagine what the process must be and I'm sure Charles has done interviews where he discusses that you know there must be some sort of system he has and I know that it was kind of done through like group discussions to some extent you know like it wasn't just Charles in a room coming up with all this it was like the product of like a bunch of Star Wars authors getting together and bouncing ideas off of each other. So it's not purely from Charles's mind, but it still takes a lot to organise all those disparate ideas and concepts into something coherent. And yeah, he did a good job. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's the case for a lot of the books going forward. That obviously, like the high concepts have been kind of discussed together as a group like they before we got the book there were all these like videos and that of them all on their retreat together writing on whiteboards and discussing concepts and themes because while they're going to be like distinct stories obviously from authors that have their own voices you'd hope that as more and more of them come out you see as you were kind of alluding to with the Arthurian reference like is there going to be some overall like thematic heft to it you know yeah exactly yeah so it all has to be serving some kind of greater purpose essentially so we want the authors to bring their like individual talents to the stories but equally they can't be too separate essentially so that yeah that collaboration is absolutely critical i think with this project and i think they knew that you know that's why they started with collaboration at the absolute core of this project and so far it seems to be working so yeah i'm excited to keep reading the books 
and hopefully we'll be back with another episode where we talk about test of courage and into the dark because yeah test of courage is obviously a very short book because it's for younger readers but there's still some cool stuff to discuss in there and into the dark well i haven't finished it yet but so far it's very promising so yeah it'll also be a fun discussion at some point um okay cool um anything else kirsty or should we round it off I don't think so, but I'd be curious to hear what our listeners thought of Light of the Jedi. It seems to have been well received in general. Yeah. You know, to varying degrees. I mean, I've seen some people quite um, divided on how it evolves the concept of hyperspace in the Star Wars universe, because right. it kind of reminded me of how um, like the Holdo stuff works in The Last Jedi, but that itself was kind of new to Star Wars, right? Yes. Um and I haven't read a load of the EU books, but I get the impression that it's quite different the way that hyperspace worked there. So it's okay. kind of like they've completely reconceptualized it. Yeah. That's, that's the sort of thing I feel like I'm still getting my head around <laughs> in terms of the um, hyperspace function. Like, I do understand the basic idea of there being, like, routes through hyperspace that can be charted and, like, they can clash potentially if they're, like, done illegally, like the ones that the Nihal have. Um, but yeah, it's a lot, basically. It's very intricately realised, and that's a good thing. You can tell they've put a lot of effort into it, but it's also a bit difficult to get your head around to some extent. Yeah, it's just something that I'd never really thought about in terms of, you know, even after The Last Jedi, like, I treated the Holdo thing as, like, an isolated thing, but hadn't really thought about things randomly coming out of hyperspace and just completely causing total destruction. <laughs> Yeah. It's quite terrifying, really, isn't it? Because, you, you know, you see hyperspace in Star Wars, and obviously there's, like, an element of risk. It's like Han Solo has to know what he's doing, and there's, like, never tell me the odds. It's like, there is this, like, danger to it, but it, it was always kind of presented as something fun, you know? Um, and now it's got this serious death toll to it, and, you know, there's... It was kind of actually quite strange reading this in the, um, the pandemic, and they have all these references to, like, quarantine and, like, closing down channels, so... <laughs> <laughs> planets are like restricted and kind of cut off from supplies and stuff mm. the ultimate real world foreshadowing <laughs> obviously an unintentional parallel but i was like oh it's just kind of strange to read like about quarantine <laughs> during this yeah no, that was weird and it's kind of like ah keep the pandemic out of my escapism please <laughs> Well, because you had all of these representatives of planets and, and like senators coming to the Chancellor and being like, hey, you're actually stifling things here. So there was actually this like discussion going on about what was going to be best like for the economic system and for people's safety. So it surprised me that that kind of played a part. Yeah, 100%. Um, but yeah, no, it's good. We should check it out. Um, and yeah, if you have any thoughts on the book yourself that you want to share with us, please do email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com because we'd like to hear them. Okay, I think that's it. So I'm Rachel and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at scavengershorde. Until next time, bye! Bye!